What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 17 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. Since its invention by Jean Glass back in the 70s, the approach of the meta-analysis for aggregating research findings has taken the education world by storm. From the influential work of John Hattie to the newly released Teaching and Learning Toolkit, the meta-analysis has been lauded, in Australia and the UK at least, as the ultimate methodology for identifying high-impact teaching strategies and using that knowledge to direct teaching and learning from the classroom level to that of public policy. But Adrian Simpson, today's guest, warns us that we should be careful. In his 2017 paper, The Misdirection of Public Policy, Comparing and Combining Standardised Effect Sizes, Adrian discusses the assumptions on which meta-analyses are based and alludes to the repercussions if those assumptions are violated. This article forms foundation for this ERRR episode. And what an episode it is. I haven't said this before, but I truly think that this episode is vital listening for anyone in the educational arena, from teachers to principals to policymakers. Adrian's arguments are both engaging and compelling, and I hope you find this episode as edifying as I did. So, who is Adrian Simpson? Adrian Simpson is a professor of mathematics education at Durham University in the UK and is a principal of Josephine Butler College. He worked as a secondary mathematics teacher before becoming a lecturer in pure mathematics. A chance encounter with an education colleague trying to interpret a primary school pupil's arithmetic led to a change of direction from researching the logical foundations of infinitesimals to mathematics education research. While most of his research has been about teaching and learning mathematics at the undergraduate level, within mathematics education he has been quite eclectic, writing research papers on topics from conceptual growth to the use of videos in the development of teachers' professional visions. With colleagues, he has had a number of grants, including funding to study patterns of assessment in undergraduate mathematics, transferring Shanghai mathematics methods to the UK, and creating a nationwide program for developing mathematics teachers' skills in high-level school mathematics. This was all before another chance encounter, this time with a philosopher, led to a second change of direction to his most recent work, looking at the use of quantitative methods in evidence-based policy within education. Before we enter the ERRR, I just wanted to remind listeners that I'm now putting out a Friday email that summarises all the fantastic articles on teaching and learning that I've come across in the previous week. Last week's email included some tips on avoiding teacher burnout, how to get the most out of education conferences, a link to a great Teachers Education Review podcast episode on educational leadership, and much, much more. You can sign up for this weekly education digest at ollilovell.com. That's enough of an intro, so now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 17 of the ERRR with Adrian Simpson. Adrian Simpson, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. No worries. All right, well, first question we always start with, Adrian, is if you're at a party and someone asks you, hi, Adrian, uh, how are you doing? What is it that you do? What's your answer? I mean, I I probably focus on the, the bit of me that's not the education research thing that I do because half of my job is being a principal at Josephine Butler College at Durham University. Durham's one of these kind of weird universities that has these human scale units within it. So students belong to a college during all their time here and they're self-organized 
groups of undergraduates and postgraduates across lots of different subjects. And they do, if you like, everything apart from their formal teaching input inside the college. And, and I head that up and it's a really fantastically rewarding job. So, so that's probably what I concentrate on. But if somebody was kind of pushing me on the, the academic or the more academic side of my job, I'd probably steal a line from one of my previous colleagues who used to use this rather offensive phrase from George Bernard Shaw about those who can do, those who can't teach. And he took it further and said, well, those who can't teach, teach teachers. Those who can't teach teachers do educational research. Well, I teach people to do educational research. <laughs> Bottom of the pile, fair enough. I'm curious to hear more about this school. So when you say a college, is that yeah. Is that for school students? Because where I am, yeah. college would be year 11 and 12. What does college mean for you? So, so it's the university split down into, into 16 colleges. They're called colleges. They're, they're associated with traditional universities. I know you have a couple in, in Australia as well that are organised this kind of way. So each student belongs to a community that's about 1,000 to 1,500 people, all different subjects. And they do, they do all their sport there. We have our own library. We have our own chaplain. They do all of their drama and music. We do lots of sort of wider intellectual development activity, seminars. We do lots of volunteering, all, all of which inside this community. And they belong to it all the way during their time at university, postgraduates, members of the academic community as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a different way of being at university than you, know, you, you, don't, you never feel like you're one of 20,000. You always feel like you're sort of one of a, a community of around about 1,000, 1,500. Got it. And, and for us as Australians who are, you know, across the seas, could you just tell us a bit about Durham University? Like, where is Durham and how does it relate to some of the other universities in England and that kind of a thing? So, so geographically, we're, we're up in the, in the northeast and it's about three hours from London north and about an hour and a half south of Edinburgh. It's quite a small city. It's a very, very beautiful city. It's got Bill, Bill Bryson described it as having the, the best cathedral on planet Earth. Wow. It's very dominated by the university. It's such a small city. We, you know, we've got about 17, 18,000 students in a city that the centre of which has got about 30,000 30, people. And it's, it's quite a high ranking university. You know, we tend to be up in the top five all the time, particularly for areas like physics, English. Education is, is extremely good. I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> All right. Well, did you want to maybe give us a little bit of a, a bit of a history about your career to date? How did you come to, to your current, I guess, dual roles yeah. throughout your, your career? So after I left university, I, I went into being a math teacher for a while. And then I kind of realized that I, I had still not kind of got over my, my math bug. So I went back to, to university to study for a, a PhD in pure maths. And while I was there, I met someone called Janet Duffin, who's a colleague in the maths department, but she was somebody who was a numeracy tutor. She helped people who were struggling with their mathematics. And she also did a lot of work in school. In fact, I remember very clearly she was wandering around the maths department with this piece of paper in her hand, trying to, trying to get mathematicians interested in the work of a, a, an eight-year-old girl who'd been trying to do some multiplication. And she was, she'd sort of developed her own method for doing multiplication. And every mathematician was saying, oh, but that's not very efficient. She needs to learn the standard methods and all this kind of thing. And I looked at it and said, well, actually, it, it is the standard method. It's the standard method in binary. It's a form of multiplication called, called Russian peasant math multiplication. And it just involves 
adding pairs of numbers. So it's, it's actually quite a simple form of multiplication. But we ended up working on that for a while. And that combined with my background in teaching kind of moved me from pure mathematics into thinking about how people learn mathematics. And I worked with Janet for quite a long time. And then I moved to, to Warwick University and predominantly working on mathematics education at the, at the university level or the transition from school to university, particularly around things like people understanding abstract structures, people understanding proof. Uh, but at the same time, I'd always had this other aspect of my job. I was always involved in student support and student development, student intellectual development. And then the, uh, the role came up at Durham. So I moved here primarily for that. But you know, I've got lots of fantastic colleagues in the education departments, and I still do quite a bit of teaching occasionally for the for the maths department, which I enjoy doing. I, I occasionally miss doing the teaching of real maths. Got it. Well, so to, I mean, today the the paper that we've nominated for the discussion is is your recent paper entitled "The Misdirection of Public Policy: Comparing and Combining Standardized Effect Sizes." So, how did you come to be looking? at this topic? Because it seems like a bit of a deviation for, from some yeah. of the things you've been talking about already. Yeah, it, it is. And it, it's, one of, it's one of the other great things about the nature of, of the, this particular university at Durham and, and the college system that we have, because you get to meet people from lots and lots of different disciplines. So this happened, I, I was in fact in a different college for a meeting and we were just chatting. I was chatting with somebody afterwards and she was asking a little bit about things I was interested in. And I, at the time, I was kind of tangentially interested in the, the work that had come out, this, this visible learning book that was starting to take a little bit of a little bit of traction in the UK. And I'd written a little review of it with Steve Higgins, one of my colleagues here in, in Durham. And this person I was sat with said, oh, you must come and talk to my, my friend, Nancy Cartwright, who's a philosopher. And it was one of those things I sat down and had a, a sort of 10 minute conversation with a philosopher who are just brains on sticks. And she just really encouraged me to think much more deeply about what I'd been writing about in that little review. And it led me to really think very carefully about the nature of, of, of the kind of argument that's being put forward, not just in visible learning, but also another thing that was take, which probably has more traction in the UK is this thing called the Education Endowment Foundation Teaching and Learning Toolkit. And the more I looked at it, the more I became really concerned that the, these things were getting real traction amongst teachers and amongst people designing policy. So that's really what led me into to trying to write up what, what my concerns were. Right. Now, right from the outset, your article is quite, quite damning, I would say. Even in the abstract, it says league tables of types of intervention, which governments point to as evidence-based for effective practice, may instead be hierarchies of openness to research design manipulations. Mm. That's just an example. There's lots of what could be termed quite damning claims and, and assertions in this paper. Now, obviously, many governments, such as the Australian government and the, and the UK government, have put a lot of money into mm. supporting organisations like the Education Endowment Foundation, who have then in turn placed a lot of emphasis on these kind of meta-analyses. Meta yeah. So, I just wanted to ask from the, from the outset, what has the reception been like for this paper? Generally positive, apart from those people who've kind of developed these things. I mean, understandably, the people who developed these things have, have put an enormous amount of effort into them. And, you know, we, we're academics. We have big egos. All academics have big egos. It, and it's quite hard to, to listen to somebody criticising it and, and really think deeply about whether or not that criticism is warranted or not. 
I mean, and I know, I mean, I'm not the only person to, to criticize meta analysis and meta meta analysis. And, and sometimes people do move into kind of ad hominem attacks, which I, which I try and avoid. And I think one of the things is really worth saying at the outset is the people who are behind these, I do know some of them quite well, some of them are in, in my department. They're, they're really decent, honorable people. They're, they're, they're not, they're not out to make a fast buck. These are people who have, as far as I can tell, nothing other than the interests of teachers and the interests of education and social justice behind what they're doing. They're just wrong. I mean, that, that's, that's the issue. They're just wrong in what they're doing. Not, not that they're dishonorable, not that they're trying to do anything deliberately wrong. You know, they're, what they're trying, they're trying their best. Mm, okay. They had a, another really good opener question. I was curious whether you have a sense of how widespread this government reliance on meta and meta analyses and meta meta analyses. So, are there other contexts in other nations where this is a really big thing, or is it particularly Australia and Britain? I think my my sense is that the meta meta analysis is very much a British and Australian thing. There's quite a lot of store put in in meta-analysis everywhere, and particularly when you look at the States. There's lots of people doing meta-analysis in the States. And you get a few, in the last couple of years, a few of these meta-analyses and meta-meta-analyses have started to be done in sort of particular areas. So there's one was published last year by Schneider and Prakel looking at effectively a league table of influences on, on higher education using, by, by rank ordering, meta-analyses. And so there's... I think it's different in different countries. And certainly when I when I talk to, I do a lot of work in the, in the Czech Republic. This is just completely alien to them. They've, they've never heard of anything like this. They're not, yeah, it, it's not, but they, they spend very much time talking about. That's really interesting because from the Australian perspective, we just hear day in, day out about meta-analyses and, and these rankings. So yeah. that's interesting. An interesting place that you started your paper was a little bit about the history of this idea of the effect size. So I was wondering if you could give listeners a bit of an idea, you know, why did Jacob Cohen feel it necessary to create this D thing? And what is this D thing? So, I mean, probably, probably the best place to start is, is really just to, to say a little bit about what, what we mean by study. What, what is it that we're aggregating together and where does this D thing come from? And the simplest kind of stereotypical notion of a study is that you start with a sample that you split up into two groups perhaps randomly if you're doing a randomized control trial, but and, and some people insist on randomized control trials and some people say, well, you can have other kinds of ways of splitting two groups up. But you take two groups and you have an intervention treatment and you have a control treatment. And it's probably worth saying it's, it's quite important to think that there is a thing called the control treatment because people often just think about the intervention treatment. But you know, and almost take it as read that the control is is not doing the intervention. But in fact, we can't freeze dry students. It tends to be unethical to freeze dry students. What we have we have to do something for them while the while the intervention group is doing something. So they might get an alternative form of teaching or what's called a business at usual, but they're doing something. So we have groups split into intervention treatment, control treatment, and then we have some kind of outcome measure. Usually, some kind of test is taken at the end of that, you know, after, after the treatments are finished. I mean, obviously, there are lots of other different research designs, but that's kind of the most stereotypical one and the one that fits a lot of what you see in the in the studies when you dig down into the the EF toolkit or into visible learning down to the individual study level. 
Now, most people, when they're designing studies, they're interested in, in two things. Well, they're interested in one thing, which is the idea of finding a real difference. But underpinning that, there are two issues. There's, is the finding real? That is, you know, I, I don't want to draw the conclusion that there's a difference between the intervention group and the control group that actually wasn't caused by the difference between the intervention treatment and the control treatment. But I also want to avoid missing a difference that might be a real difference. So they're called type one and type two errors. And what Cohen was particularly interested in was the this whole issue of trying to avoid missing a real difference, trying to avoid missing a, a, a difference that's actually there. So he introduced this notion of power because he wanted to get a sense of what are our chances, given our study design, what are our chances of finding a difference if there is one to be found? And what we'd want to do is to design a study so that that's quite high. So he developed his notion of effect size because he wanted to, to look at that, that idea of power, the chance of finding a difference, as being based on three things. The sample size, and the bigger the sample you have, the more likely you are to find a difference between the two groups. This thing called the significance level, it's normally taken at sort of 5%. And this thing that he introduced, which is the effect size. and Again, you have different research designs, so you also have different notions of effect size. But for the kind of common research design that I was describing, we have this thing called Cohen's D or the standardized mean difference. And that's that's the really that's a really important notion because that's the one that tends to get aggregated in meta-analyses and meta-meta-analyses. So the definition of that is you take the scores for the intervention group and you find the average of them and you subtract from that the average of the scores for the control group and then you divide that by some kind of measure of the spread of those scores and different people have different definitions of that so you might take the standard deviation of the control group or you might take what's called the standard deviation of the, the pooled standard deviation of the two groups together it's kind of not important which of them it is it's just important i think that people hold in their heads that you've got the the mean intervention group test score take away the mean control test score divide by some kind of measure of spread and that that's the really that's a really important issue because we have that from an individual study and then people sometimes compare individual studies on the basis of, of effect size then meta-analysts group studies together so they might take all of the studies that use graphics calculators and then work out the effect size and average those, perhaps doing some weighting, but they kind of find the average of those effect sizes. And then meta-meta-analysts take those meta-analyses, group them together in still kind of bigger groups like digital technology, and find the average effect size for those. And then that's where we get the rank ordering from the sort of biggest effect size at the bottom down to the, the smallest and sometimes the negative ones. All right. So, so on the top of this D thing, we've got the... Mm. the average of the intervention group, subtract the average of the control group, divided by some measure of variation. So my understanding is there's a couple of ways you can get a big D or a big effect size. First way is if there's a big difference between the intervention group and the control group after the intervention. And the other way is if there's a small amount of variation or there's a small number on the bottom. Yeah. And so I guess that's the way that we're going to be talking about sometimes how results can get biased throughout the rest of the interview. Does that sound like a fair fair, fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think 
I think the, the first key thing to say before we get into how we can make the difference is really thinking about that almost as soon as you think about the definition of D, you realize that it's the wrong kind of thing to be the measure of the effectiveness of an intervention, because that's how it's used. Because you've got this mean of the intervention group, mean of the control group divided by the standard deviation, we should see immediately that actually the intervention only plays a partial role in that. So I have this kind of silly example I've been playing, playing around with. So I've, I've got a cat who's called Fitz. If you asked me how old he was and I said to you, he's four and a half kilos, you kind of say, well, that's not just, it's not just a right or wrong answer. It's the wrong kind of answer. Age plays a role in weight, but they're not the same thing. And that's exactly the same thing with effect size. The intervention plays a role in the effect size, but it only plays a partial role. It doesn't play, play the whole, the whole role. You can change the test, you can change the control group, you can change how spread out the sample is, and you'll, you'll get a different effect size, even though you haven't done anything to the intervention at all. So it's the wrong, it's the wrong kind of thing. So the key issue becomes, well, as soon as you recognize that it's a category error, you have to start to ask, well, when, when is it possible to use it as a proxy? When is it possible that it's, it's something you could use even though it's not quite right? So, for example, if, you know, I go out and I weigh Fitz and he's four and a half kilos, you go out and you weigh your cat and it's three and a half kilos, when might I reasonably say that Fitz is older than your cat, not heavier, older than your cat? And the only time I can do that is if every other factor that impacts on weight other than age is exactly the same. So if I knew your cat was the same breed as mine, if I knew they had the same genetic makeup, if I knew they had the same feeding regimes, if I knew they had the same exercise regime, once I knew all of that, I might be able to say, okay, then weight can act as a reasonable proxy for age. And we're going to find that is exactly the same thing with effect size. You can only compare two studies if everything that impacts on effect size that's not the intervention is the same. So if the test, the sample, and the control group are the same. And there's kind of a, there's kind of a layer beyond, beyond that because that's, if you like, just comparing two studies, comparing two cats. But meta-analysts would argue that when they group studies together on average, then all of these other influences, they get factored out. And, and that's, I think, is the key, the key mistake that people make. There's a huge, huge assumption there. So if I can just continue with my kind of silly cat analogy. I take I take my local cat shelter and I go and I average the weight of all of the cats in my cat shelter. And you go to your local cat shelter and you weigh all of the cats in your cat shelter and you average them out. And I find that my cat shelter average is higher than yours. When am I justified that saying that on average, my cats are older than your cats on the basis of being heavier than your cats? Well, I mean, I mean, I can see you shaking your heads, which is kind of, well, you can't, you can never do that. Well, you could if you were really sure that all of the other factors that impacted on weight apart from age were equally distributed. So, if, you know, if we had the, if we had the same breeds, you know, the same dist distribution, the same proportion of the same breeds, we had the same exercise regimes in the two cat shelters, we had the same feeding regime in the two cat shelters, it would still be a pretty rough idea. It's still 
be a category error to do it, but you could probably do it provided you had this really, really strict set of assumptions. But if I found out that you've got lots of Norwegian forest cats and I haven't got any, and I've got lots of Maine Coon cats and you've only got a few, then that kind of blows it out of the water. As soon as we know we've got that, that's not distributed evenly, that's blown out of the water. Exactly the same thing happens with effect size. I can take relative average effect size to act as a proxy for relative ag- average effectiveness of interventions, but only if all of the other influences are distributed evenly. So if the tests were distributed evenly across these two educational areas, if the samples were distributed evenly, the control treatments were distributed evenly. But that's an enormous assumption. And I mean, it's not actually our role to check that assumption. It should be the analyst's role to check that assumption before they put their analysis out there. And they don't. But kind of almost as soon as you say it, you know, just at a sense check level, it can't possibly be true. And actually, then when you look, look at it, you find that it's not true. So kind of all the way through, you need to think on these two levels that effect size is a category error because we can get very, very different effect sizes for identical interventions. But also that when you try to average them together, hoping that these will factor out, you find that the things which you're trying to factor out aren't distributed equally across different areas. Does that make sense or did, or, or, or was that? It does make sense, but I'm a bit distracted because I'm wondering if cats and category error is a pun intended or not. I, actually, it wasn't. I only noticed it the other day. <laughs> <laughs> that's a beautiful thing. And that's, that's a great summary. So maybe now we can dive into some of the ways in which D gets either purposefully or accidentally manipulated to give, yep. give listeners a bit of an idea of, I guess, the meat of your paper. So the first challenge or the way that effect sizes get biased that you outlined in your paper was unequal comparison groups. Mm. So could you tell us a little bit about unequal comparison groups? Yeah, again, it, it should be something that follows fairly quickly from thinking about the definition. We've got the, the mean score of the intervention group. We've got the mean score of the control group. We divide by the standard deviation. In fact, here, dividing by the standard deviation doesn't really matter all that much. Just the, the more that I can do to make the control group improve its score, the smaller I can make that difference with the intervention group without changing the intervention. So if I do something that's actually quite beneficial to the control group, then they're going to get closer to the intervention group, assuming the intervention was effective. In fact, if I do something really beneficial to the control group, I might even outscore the intervention group and I get a negative effect size. So th- you know, this idea that I can get a completely different effect size for the same intervention but different control groups kind of emphasise the fact that you shouldn't really be using effect size as a, as a measure of the effectiveness of an intervention. So my favourite example, which actually isn't in the paper, I found it only after the paper, is there's a, a nice meta-analysis of intelligent tutoring systems. So these are normally sort of computer-based programmes where you go on, you're taught some topic, and it, it normally is, it's intelligent in the sense that it responds to your you know, how you do on little tests as you go through it and it sends you down different pathways through the tutoring so this this meta-analyst groups together a whole bunch of studies that use intelligent tutoring systems and get some kind of average effect size i forget what it was i think it's something like 0.25 as the average effect size across all of them but then what what the analyst does which is quite common in meta-analysis is something called a moderator analysis so they take subgroups of papers and average the effect size for those subgroups 
along lots of different dimensions. So in this particular one, they looked at the nature of the control group. So they looked at intelligent tutoring systems versus, let's say, human tutoring. And the effect size there, averaged across those studies, was minus 0.25. And then they looked at, well, what if the control group had been reading materials? So rather than having intelligent tutoring system, you read some paper materials or some online materials. The average across those was 0.47. But then the one that amused me most was there's one called the intelligent tutoring system versus no treatment. And I thought, well, that's that's an odd phrase. So I, I dug down into what the papers were under that heading, which has a huge effect size, 0.9. That's quite that's a really big effect size averaged across those. And when you look at them, what that actually means is not being taught the topic. So what one example is an intelligent tutoring system, which is teaching economics. And you take a group of people who've not been taught any economics at all. And the intervention group gets taught some economics using the, inter the intelligent tutoring system. The control group don't get taught any economics. And then you give them an economics test. Surprise, surprise, the intelligent tutoring systems do really quite well there. So and, and that's a really nice example of how you would expect to see effect sizes really quite different depending on the control group that you use. I mean, there's another quite nice example I've, I've come across recently and, and, and allows me to say a little bit more about the Education Endowment Foundation because they don't just do the toolkit. They also fund a lot of direct, normally randomized control trials and normally quite high quality ones. So they, they did an evaluation of, of a thing called catch-up numeracy, which is a particular one-to-one -one numeracy intervention with a particular curriculum, a particular form of teaching. And you pull struggling pupils out of class and you give them this particular kind of one-to-one -one tutorial. But in their design of the, of, of the research behind this, the, the evaluators thought, well, let's not have one control group. Let's have two control groups. And one control group basically had their ordinary teaching. So they, they weren't pulled out of class, they just had their ordinary teaching. But the second control group had one-to-one -one tutoring, so they were still pulled out of class, but their teaching assistants who were pulling them out were told to do any kind of one-to-one -one math tutoring, numeracy tutoring, apart from this thing called catch-up numeracy. So they could choose whatever they wanted, provided it wasn't a specific intervention. So you've effectively got two control groups for exactly the same intervention, exactly the same sample, because they were chosen at random from the same sample, and exactly the same test as well. So when we compared, when they compared the catch-up numeracy with the business as usual, they got I don't know, quite, quite a large effect size, let's call it 0.5, I can't remember what it was. And then when they compared it to another form of one-to-one -one tutoring, it was actually small and negative. Wow. And so, so it turns out the catch-up numeracy, or their argument is the catch-up numeracy element itself made no difference. It was the one-to-oneness that made the difference. But again, you get exactly the same intervention, different control groups, exactly the same test, exactly the same sample, really radically different effect sizes. So we can't use effect size as a, a measure of anything to do with the intervention on its own. It's a measure of the study as a whole, not the intervention on its own. So, so if a teacher or researcher wanted to kind of inflate their effect size, all they'd have to do is, is choose a control condition where that control condition has the minimum chance of kind of doing any learning possible. And then they could get, you know, effect sizes up to one and above. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, if if it was ethical, you could even do something that was harmful, and you make it even bigger. Got it. I've looked a lot at the studies in visible learning, and I've noticed a lot of them are correlation studies yeah. that have been converted to an effect size. I really enjoyed your paper. You had a lot of technical details, which I, I think are really necessary, but you didn't talk anything about the the trend that a lot of those meta-analysis used of converting correlation to effect size. So what do you think about those? Yeah, I mean, that's it, it, it's, a, it's a different issue. It's, it's an important issue. As I said earlier on, there's lots of different kind of research designs, and one of them, rather than just doing a simple intervention versus control, what you can do is you can manipulate the amount, the, the sort of dosage of the intervention. So, you know, I could give one homework a week, two homeworks a week, three homeworks a week, four homeworks a week, five homeworks a week, and look at how, you know, the, the correlation between how many homeworks per week I give and the outcome on some test. And you can get a, a an effect size of a different kind for that. And sometimes people just, there are ways of converting between the two. They They rely on a huge number of assumptions, which again, people don't check. But more importantly, and, and a bigger mistake, is that people just don't do the conversion. And, and that's just wrong. I mean, there's just there's no two ways about it. You can't just take uh, a correlation coefficient and assume it's a Cohen's D. They're, they're very, very different things. I mean, the, there are lots of, if you like, mistakes that could be corrected inside things like the Education Endowment Foundation's toolkit or invisible learning. And I kind of don't want to get into those because they are, they're correctable. So converting between effect sizes, you know, both both of those big meta-analyses make that mistake at some at some place. There are, there are typos. Visible learning makes some pretty pretty big errors. One of the ones that it does is it's quite often it's actually not looking at something which is an intervention at all. So you know it looks at the effect of something like sickle cell anemia. Well, best will in the world as a teacher, I can't do anything about sickle cell anemia. I can neither give it to you nor take it away from you. I wish I could, but I can't. It's not an intervention in any kind of way. And including things which are interventions and things which are not interventions is really problematic, particularly when you include them together. So, I mean, in fact, I think on George's blog, he, he gives an example about disruptive behavior where there are three meta-analyses put together. One of them, so the two of them are meta-analyses where they're all studies of, of manipulating a behavioral intervention. So you try one behavioral intervention against another one in that kind of control and intervention group way. But the last one isn't about manipulating anything at all. It's not an intervention. The last one is a meta-analysis of studies that just look at the difference between people who have behavioral problems and people who don't have behavioral problems. Well, again, I can't give you or take away from you behavioral problems other than through an intervention, just, just simply looking at what naturally happens between people who have behavioral issues and people who don't. That's not a manipulation study. So those two shouldn't be combined. But again, that's just an error. And the response to an error like that is someone could just turn around and say, oh, well, I can just correct that. M my point is more that the, the whole notion of using effect size as a, as, a, as a proxy for effectiveness and intervention is a category error. It's just the wrong thing. It's the, it's the whole enterprise is flawed. There, there isn't a way of correcting it. I'm not saying we shouldn't correct those mistakes. We should. But even if you corrected them, you, you've still got a huge problem on your hands. Got it. So that was unequal comparison groups and, and moving into some other interesting 
areas like running from a correlation coefficient to a D. The second challenge you talk about is range restriction. So what's range restriction and how does that impact effect sizes? Range restriction is that there's two separate issues in relation to range restriction and, and we need to understand that they interact in quite interesting kind of ways. So there's a statistical issue and then there's an issue which is to do with the potential differential impact of the intervention. So the, the statistical issue is if we imagine that we've got an intervention it's, and it's moderately effective on everyone compared to the control on the test that we're doing, but basically everybody gets benefit from it. And imagine that we try that intervention on, on, a, on a huge range of people. Well, those people are going to be already, before we, before we start the, the trial, we've already got quite a wide spread of ability. So we'll already have quite a wide spread of scores. And when we do the intervention, you know, some of those scores will increase for the, for the intervention group and some of those scores will stay the same for the control group. But when we standardise, so I'm going to find a difference between every, for everybody between their, their score in the intervention group and their score in the control group. But when we standardise, I'm dividing by quite a large number. So I get that kind of little difference at the top, you know, this moderately effective difference at the top of my, my formula for, for standardised mean difference or for effect size. But I'm going to divide by quite a big number. But now if what I did is I took a slice through that, exactly the same data. If I don't even need to rerun the, the, the trial. I take exactly the same data and I just take a slice through the middle looking at a more homogenous group on, in terms of ability, then the numerator is the same. The top of that fraction is going to be the same because everybody has improved by a little bit in, in the intervention group and everyone in the control group has stayed the same. So that difference is stays the same. But I'm dividing by a much smaller number because I've chosen a more homogenous group. So I get a, I get a bigger effect size. So that's the kind of statistical one, which is when I, when I take more homogenous groups, I get bigger effect sizes because their spread is much smaller, provided that the, the intervention is effective across everyone. But there's the second issue with range restriction is that you might have differential impact. So suppose an, an intervention is only effective on a particular group of people. So let's say we've got some one-to-one -one reading recovery intervention, and it's much, much more effective with low achievers and virtually non-effective with high achievers. So if I focus on the low achievers, I'm going to get quite a quite a large numerator, I'm going to quite quite a large raw mean difference between the intervention group and the control group. And I'm going to be dividing by quite a small number. So I get a really big effect size. If I focus on the high achievers, then well there's not going to be very much difference between the intervention and the control because you know they they're, they're already reading quite well. So the one-to-one -one reading recovery isn't going to do very much for them. So I've got a small raw mean difference before we standardise. But then when I standardise, I'm inflating it because I'm still just looking at a slice through a, a wide ability range. I've got quite a narrow ability range. So these two things kind of interact in that relatively complex way. If I've got a tight focus on a group where the intervention is particularly effective, I kind of get this double whammy. I get it's effective. And I've looked at a small group. But if I looked at a tight focus on a group where it's not effective, I might actually, well, where it's only partially effective, I might still get quite a large effect size because what I've done is looked very, very tightly at them. So I might have a small number at the top, but I've divided by a small number at the bottom. 
and still get quite a large effect size. So those two issues need to be thought of quite carefully. Now, you, you can you can adjust for the statistical problem. So you, you can adjust for range restriction. But it's kind of going back to, to George's point there. That, that's a thing that's a thing we could correct if we wanted to. And this is a mistake that meta meta analysts and in fact, meta analysts do, which is they don't correct for this. So I, I, I looked the other day at all of the meta analyses that are used in the in the toolkit. And I looked for the word range restriction and they only appear in one of the, you know, of the many, you know, probably hundreds of meta analyses they use. And that one. That's one meta analysis that talks about range restriction. What they actually say is they make range restriction worse because they make some other adjustment, which they accept makes range restriction a worse problem. So when you when you're comparing individual studies, if one's done on a very tight group and one's done on a very wide group, you, you have to both think about adjusting for the range restriction and think about, well, am I looking at something where I might have differential impact? And that, that's really difficult to do. And again, kind of means you can't do that. You can't compare across studies that have different, different spreads of sample. Mm. Just trying to get my head, head around this a bit more. Could it work? I'm just thinking, say, say I'm a teacher and I'm running a bit of a math intervention at my school and I want to mm. measure the effect size of, of this intervention. Mm-hmm. Does this mean that if I were to say my, I think, think in the UK, you guys call it setting yeah. when you kind of stream students into kind of the lower bottom set, middle and top. Yeah. If I were to run the intervention across all sets and it had a moderate positive effect on every set, yeah. does this mean that I could actually boost the effect size if I first calculate the effect size for the bottom set, then the middle set, then the top and average them? And I would actually get a significantly larger effect size if I did that than if I just took all the students' results before, all them after and based an effect size on that. Yeah, so, so in, in the paper, I, I do a simulation of that, but, it, but it's, a, you know, it's a relatively easy thing just to sort of think through in your head that if I take if I take exactly the same intervention, in fact, exactly the same data for the whole, let's say, a whole year group of quite wide range of abilities, I'm going to get you know, whatever effect size I get. If I then look at a restricted group, I'll get a larger effect size, no matter whether that restricted group is the bottom set, the middle set or the top set. So all three of them will be inflated. So if, if I look at the bottom set, the middle set, and the and the top set, all of those will have larger effect sizes than the whole group together because I've got the, you know, the same number at the top of my fraction and a smaller number at the bottom of my fraction. And in fact, if you look at the, the you know, we talked earlier on about how much this is used in different countries. So there's a, a, a thing called the Pot Works Clearinghouse in America. And one of their recommendations is that when you have studies which are done on different samples, you should average across them. Well, absolutely, you must not average across them for exactly for exactly your example, because every single one of those groups will have a higher effect size than the whole group. You don't find the effect size for the whole group by averaging the effect size for the for the subgroup. All of them are inflated, and that's funny because that's exactly what a meta analysis does. Yeah, yeah, and if, if they don't if they don't adjust for range restriction before they average. And they don't consider the issue of differential impact before they average, then yeah, what they're doing just just doesn't make an awful lot of statistical sense. All right, on to number three. Number three is measure design. So, what is this? Mm. And this was one that I found particularly interesting. What what is measure design all about? I mean, there's, there's lots of things about the design of of the test. So this this is the test that we use. So we've got this 
we've got these two groups, the intervention group, the control group. They have their various treatments. At the end, we want to measure the outcomes. So we give them a test. And the, the test can vary in lots of different ways. You know, the, the nature of the questions that are asked, how many questions are on there, the type of response that you require from them. And all of those can Im impact on, on effect size, again, without having changed the intervention or the sample or the control group. So I've got a nice little, little thought experiment I've been working with. So imagine that you've got 100 people. And the only thing we need to know about these people is that they don't speak Hungarian doesn't let's take them to be English speakers and I'll, I'll, I'll choose Hungarian just because it's got such different root from English that people know virtually no Hungarian words at all. So I take my 100 people who are, let's say, first language English speakers, and I split them into two groups of 50 at random. And one group I take aside into a separate room and I just teach them one word of Hungarian. So I tell them that the word oktatash means education. Oktatash is education. In the words, in, in Hungarian, the word oktatash, it means education. And then I give the 100 people a test and they have to translate 10 words from Hungarian into English. And the 10 words for anybody who knows no Hungarian, they're not going to get any of them right. But one of the words is oktatash. So if you think through what happens then, my intervention group is going to get one out of 10. And pretty much all of them are going to get one out of 10 because they've just had that one word drummed into them. So they're going to get one out of one out of 10 with virtually no standard deviation. There's virtually no spread of the score. The other group, they're going to get zero out of 10. And they're all going to get zero out of 10. There's virtually no spread of the score. So when I work out my effect size, I get one minus zero divided by something that's effectively zero. That's infinite. I have an infinite effect size. That's yeah. That's the, the, the biggest effect size ever known in any any study ever done. But I can make just quite tiny changes to the test and vary the effect size pretty much anywhere I want. So suppose instead of having open answers, I had multi-choice answers. So rather than being asked to translate oktatash from Hungarian to English, you're asked which of the following four words is the English translation of oktatash. Is it car, picture, education, or book? Well, now if we think through what happens is the control group will get one of those questions right with absolute certainty, but the other nine questions they'll get right at random because they'll guess. The control group will get all of the questions right at random. So on average, they'll get two and a half questions right. And in fact, the intervention group will get three and a quarter questions right. To get one certainly right and the other nine, they'll get a quarter of them right on average. But you've also added then some noise because not everybody in the control group will get two and a half right. In fact, nobody in the control group will get two and a half right because you can't get one half right. So you'll have some variation in what the control group get and what the intervention group get. And if you work all of it through, the effect size for a, for a four-option multi-choice test it's 0.6. Well, it was infinity a moment ago. Now it's 0.6. If I'd chosen three options instead of four, I get 0.4. If I'd chosen 10 options instead of four, I get 0.9. If I chose to not include the word octatash, I get zero. So, I, I mean, I, I can just manipulate the nature of the test and get pretty much any effect size that I want. In fact, I can even 
I reckon I can even get a negative effect size. Because suppose that I put onto my multi-choice question, what's the Hungarian translation of the word Okadash? Is it purple, teacher, vomit, or motorway? Now, my guess is, I should probably really go out and do this, but my guess is... Please run this study. <laughs> well, my, my, my guess is that people will think that's quite a similar word to Oktatash, and somebody just drummed the word Oktatash means education into me for five minutes. It's probably going to mean teacher. So the intervention group will disproportionately answer teacher. The control group will just get it right, right or wrong at, at random. In fact, the right answer is vomit. So you end up with a negative effect size. The intervention group actually do worse than the control group. But the intervention didn't change. The intervention is exactly the same. It's the same sample. It's the same control treatment, but completely different effect sizes and potentially an infinite effect size. So people who will argue that effect size is a measure of the importance of an intervention will just remember how utterly trivial it is to teach people one word of a foreign language. One word of a foreign language, and I can get an infinite effect size. So, you know, just changing the test can make massive, massive differences to the, to the effect size without changing the intervention at all. That's fascinating. Now, if we look at Octatash more generally mm. and the way in which studies are carried out in Octatash, how would you suggest that this bias generally plays out? Because obviously we don't... Well, I mean, tests are run like this. Sometimes we do multiple choice tests. Sometimes we do fill in the blank tests. Mm. But systematically, can you see this, this measure design error propagating through meta-analyses and, and in what ways? Yeah, I mean, so I'm again not the first person to talk about why, why test design effects, changes effect size. And you can see it in individual studies. So quite often you'll see a designer of an individual study might do more than one test. So they might have a primary test and a secondary test, or they might, they might be testing a, a couple of different things. So again, one of the EEF project studies looked at a thing called response to intervention, which is a, a, read, a one-to-one reading response. And they, the evaluators for that project used two different literacy tests, one called Progress in English, one called the New Group Breathing Test. And they're both what we'd call standardized tests. They're tests that not, weren't designed by the researchers. They're kind of off-the-shelf tests that you might buy from a company that designs tests. And they found very different effect sizes. So for progress in English, they found minus 0.9. For the new group reading test, they found plus 0.19. Again, the, the Nuffield Early Language Intervention, a very similar kind of intervention, they used lots of different tests. And they found effect sizes from 0.1 to 0.29. And there's, there's a, a bit of research by a, a group of people led by Reese Primo who distinguish between tests which they call immediate tests. So those are tests which are very much of something you've just, that, that's very tar- targeted to what you've been learning. And then close tests, proximal tests, distal tests, and remote tests, each think about moving from being less direct tests of the, of the, of the actual information you've just been taught. So things like distal tests and remote tests are things that might be something like a standardized test or even a public exam performance would be an example of a remote test. And that they found that across the studies they were looking at, close tests were about two to five times larger in effect size when averaged across that set of studies than were distal tests. And Chung and Slavin did a very similar thing. They looked at 600 and something studies and they looked at standardized tests versus researcher design tests. And standardized tests across their group of studies were about 
half the size of the researcher design tests. Now, again, that's that's a problem from when we look at an individual study compared to another individual study. I mean, realistically, unless the tests are exactly the same, you can't compare them. But we, we kind of we've been talking at that kind of level of an individual study compared to another individual study. But remember, we need to actually be talking at two levels. We've got individual study against individual study, but we need to also look at the level of comparing a meta-analysis with a meta-analysis or you know, a group of studies with a group of studies. Because the meta-analysts are arguing that if this is a category error, to talk about effect size as being a proxy for the effectiveness of an intervention, which, which it clearly is, it doesn't matter because the other influences on effect size will factor out when you average lots of them together. But that will only work if the distributions of all of those different factors are the same across different areas. So we need to look at the distributions across those different areas. So we would need, for example, that the distributions of the type of test was the same across each educational area in something like the teaching and learning toolkit. So do they all use, let's say, standardized tests in roughly the same proportion? In fact, in exactly the same proportion. And you know, that's, that's an assumption that people just say, that's true. Well, it's not. If, if you look at the feedback area, huge numbers of feedback studies are done with researcher design tests. But huge numbers of studies in things like behavioral intervention tend to use either standardized tests or public exam results. So you would expect those effect sizes to be much smaller just because of the nature of the design of the study. So it kind of it, the, the idea of factoring out just doesn't work because you don't have those, that same distribution. It's almost opposite. It almost compounds because you get these biases based upon what you're studying. You get inherent biases in the studies and therefore that compounds and you end up with some kind of systematic bias happening across all of your all of your measures. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's probably best not to call them biases because that's got a particular kind of statistical meaning. I mean, they're, they're just differences. They're just if, if you think about effect size as being a property of the study, not a property of the intervention on its own, then it, it's a measure, if you like, of, of how clear the study was. I mean, I, I tend to want to talk about it more as study clarity rather than effect size. And the things that tend to be, tend to appear high on the league tables are those areas where it's easy to conduct clear studies. But the, the average that you're finding is just an average of how clear have the studies been in this area, not how important they are, and certainly not how effective the intervention is. So it's quite easy to, to design a, a, really, a really powerful study in feedback because I can control for lots of different influences. I can have a researcher design test. I can make sure that the, the control group is a, is a no feedback control group. I can make sure that the sample is quite homogenous. Quite a lot of these studies are done in psychology labs with quite often psychology undergraduate students as the participants. So you end up with you know, naturally quite powerful tests which lead to very high effect sizes. But when you look at something like a behavioural intervention, well, you're, you can't have a control group which is no behavioural intervention. That just wouldn't be ethical. You tend to use standardised tests for behavioural interventions. When you look at things like extending the school day or school uniform, by definition, a school uniform has to be done on the whole school. It's a uniform, so it has to be the whole school. So it has to be a very wide range. You're unlikely to, to test the effect of school uniform on a researcher-designed fractions test. That doesn't make any research sense. 
you're likely to look at what it does for overall performance on public exams. Well, that's going to lead to a much, much smaller effect size. I'm not, I'm not for a moment advocating school uniforms. All I'm saying is that the reasoning behind the ranking doesn't make sense. It's, it's not, it's not a sensible way of distinguishing between areas in a way that says anything about the nature of the intervention. Mm. I was wondering, something I've been really interested to do with you, Adrian, is to, for us to go through maybe a few of the top ranking things mm. in, in some of these, for example, the teaching and learning toolkit and, yeah. and think about why might this thing be at the top? Why might this thing come out in relation to your, your unequal comparison groups, range restriction yeah. and measure design? So you've already talked a little bit about feedback and why feedback might come up, mm. come up trumps. The next thing, for example, on the, the teaching and learning toolkit is metacognition and self-regulation. Yeah. Do you have any ideas about why that might be up the top? Same kind of reasons. In fact, the, the, the ones that you tend to find at the top are things that we might broadly talk about as direct instruction things. They're things where you are directly manipulating the, the way that you teach in the classroom. So they tend to lead themselves to researcher-designed tests. They tend to lead themselves to having potentially a, a, a zero a zero control group treatment. And they may or may not involve having a restricted or a wide sample. And, and this is one of the things that, that quite worries me because I've, I've seen some of the effect size advocates going out and talking about how important direct instruction is on the basis of this toolkit because it's the, you know, those, those are the things that appear at the top. Well, they don't appear at the top because they're most important. They appear, they appear at the top because it's easier to design powerful studies. And when you look down towards the, down towards the bottom where you see things like um, extending the school day and you see things like summer schools, you see things like school uniforms and so on, yep. um, those tend to be things which are much easier, so are much harder to design good studies or powerful studies. I'm not saying the researchers in those areas are are flawed in any way, but it's hard to do. It's hard to design something where it makes sense to have a research design study that's quite close to the to the topic of teaching because you aren't teaching something particular when you're doing a behavioural intervention. You aren't teaching something particular when you when you have a school uniform. So it's quite hard to have that that notion of a of a, an immediate test, and it's quite hard to have an have an a clear notion of what a control group might look like in those situations. Got it. Maybe we'll move to this idea of a month's progress. We've, we've identified some issues with, with effect size, but very much an also oft quoted metric is the month's progress. So does, does the month's progress make, make more sense than effect size or less sense than effect size? Or, or again, it's a different category altogether. I mean, first, just, just to understand what, what has happened for it for, month's progress is the EEF is basically just a multiplier. So the EEF simply takes something like, it's not quite as simple as this, but something like every 0.1 of a of an effect size in Cohen's D terms becomes one month's progress. But it's it I, th I think again it was done with honorable intent. It was done with the intent of trying to make this make sense to busy teachers. That a month's progress is something we can understand in a way that point one isn't understandable, but but it's really misleading because you go back to my Octatash example. If I if I choose my original test of of just translating these ten Hungarian words into English and I get an infinite effect size, 
we'll close all the schools down because I've just had billions of years worth of progress. But that's clearly, clearly nonsense. The, the other example I've been playing with is, you, you know, imagine you took, a, you took a picture of an elephant and you work out how much of the frame vertically the elephant covers. So you know, I've got an elephant inside a, the frame of a photograph and let's say it covers about three quarters of the height of the frame is, is elephant. And then I take a picture of a ruler and I look about, you know, how much is three quarters of the ruler on that photograph? And I say, well, it's, it's about 20 centimeters. Oh, well, that must mean the elephants are 20 centimeters tall. That's, it's nonsense. You can't, what, what they've done is taken one group of studies, which have one group of one distribution of tests and samples and control activities and try to compare that to another group of tests, which has a completely different distribution of tests and control activities and samples. And you just can't do it. And, and I think converting to month progress, while I, again, say done with absolutely honorable intent, makes it more misleading because I think people read it as meaningful. And, and it may even discourage people from trying to sort of dig down into what the meaning is in the way that if you put it as, as a Cohen's D, people might want to dig down into what, what does Cohen's D mean? And when you look at the definition, go, oh, actually, Cohen's D isn't no, is nothing, is, is not particularly to do with the intervention. The intervention only plays a partial role in that. So I need to be really careful and not interpret this as effectiveness of an intervention. Okay, this, this month's progress idea really interests me and especially in relation to, to your paper and, and something I think it was Dylan William in one of his feedback presentations that I saw in, online quoted a paper by Hillblack, Bloom and Lipsy mm-hmm. and they, they have this, I'm not, I think I sent it to you, this really yeah. interesting table of average yeah. annual gain in effect size from nationally normed tests and this fascinated me because what it shows is the average effect size you would expect or the average growth you would expect per year of school as measured by standardized tests and then converted into an effect size. So basically, the effect size of being in kindergarten or in grade one is about, Mm. if we're talking about reading, is about 1.52. The average effect size at grade five or six is about 0.32. And the average effect size at grade 11 and 12 is about 0.06. So we can see from that that the idea of a month's progress per year is completely different. Yeah. It ranges from, you know, 1.52 yeah. divided by 12 to 0.06 divided by 12. So, yeah, I found that quite, quite puzzling. Yeah, but if you go back to my sort of rather silly notion of taking a picture of a photograph and comparing it to a picture of a, of a ruler, well, you might compare it to a picture of a ruler or you might compare it to a picture of a, of a meter stick or you might compare it to a picture of a tape measure fully extended. I mean, the, the, the thing from Hill, Black, Bloom and, and Lipsy is quite interesting because it's, it's based, it's not based on averaging together lots of studies. It's based on looking at a particular set of normed tests given to each of those groups. And it's not based on a control group versus intervention group. It's, com- it's comparing an individual pupil at the end of year one with where they were at the beginning of year one and then averaging across lots of pupils. Now, again, going back to something we said earlier on, that's a different kind of design. So you need to convert effect sizes. But that that aside, it's still it's a it's a particular kind of test. 
But if you think about, again, what we're doing, we, we look at what their score was at the end of year one compared to their score at the beginning of year one, and we divide by the spread of those. Well, we kind of know that people's spread increases with age. Groups, groups tend to spread out as time goes on. I mean, in all kinds of ways. Yeah, if you, if you did the same thing for people's height or people's weight, you'd find exactly the same thing. They, you know, as people grow up, they, they move apart because we get more noise coming into the system. And in fact, that's another interesting way about thinking about effect sizes, that the distinction between signal and noise. You, you push more noise into the system, you get lower effect sizes. So all, all that I think that that league table of, of grades and effect sizes is telling us, or it's telling me, is that people get more spread out as education progresses. That, that's quite interesting. Yeah, so, so you're suggesting it's not actually a measure of how much the top of the fraction changes in terms of Coleman's D and how much that, that growth growth is. It's actually more a measure of how much the bottom of the fraction changes. Yeah, I mean, there, there might be some top of the fraction stuff as well, but I, I mean, I, and that would be quite interesting to look at. Hmm. Okay, so so the basis of this, the Hillbloom, Black and Lipsy paper was they were suggesting this idea of benchmarking effect sizes, and mm. and they pointed to some similar issues to the kind of ones that you were pointing to. But they said, but we can do this thing called benchmarking, and they proposed they proposed, for example, using this league table mm. um, of effect sizes per year level as a benchmark, and so they said. Okay, well, if you carry out an intervention with year three students and you want to talk about months progress or years progress, you should actually compare it to grade three average effect size. That was one way. They also talked about benchmarking against achievement gaps. So they said you should talk about how much the gap you've closed, for example. And they also proposed, I guess, relatedly to what you've been talking about, using context as a benchmark and saying you can only compare this effect size to studies with from similar contexts. What do you think of this idea of benchmarking? Do you think it's actually possible for us to benchmark and then based upon that to make effect sizes meaningful? Or do you think we're, we're still barking up the wrong tree? I, I think I think it's, it's still not going to work because, I mean, that, that particular benchmarking might start to help us deal with the, that conversion between an effect size and a, a month's progress notion. But the effect size notion itself is still a category error. It's still the wrong kind of thing. And averaging across effect sizes as a way of factoring out the other influences on effect size other than the intervention, just benchmarking doesn't do that. So that that's kind of a little bit doomed to failure. And people talk about doing all kinds of other things. So, so I mentioned Chung and Slavin earlier on saying that the effect size associated in, in their sample with standardized tests tended to be half that of the, the studies in their sample of using researcher design tests. So they suggest, well, you know, let's benchmark or let's adjust. So whenever you see a standardized test, just imagine doubling the effect size. But that relies on all kinds of other assumptions that, that simply don't hold because that's, that's just a ratio you found from one set of studies. I mean, I looked, this, looked at the same for where people did moderator analyses for standardized versus researcher design tests in the EEF toolkit meta-analyses. There's about 14 of those studies. And average across those 14 meta-analyses, it's about a 40% inflation, not a doubling. So you, you, you can't just do a nice, simple conversion factor. And it doesn't, none of this gets around the problem that we're dealing with a category error. We deal with the category error at the, the level of comparing one study to another study. 
And when we want to try to get rid of that category error by saying, well, we're going to average lots of studies together, and that factors out things like the test and the sample and the control activity, you can only do that if all of those things are distributed evenly. Well, that will never, ever be the case. It will never, ever be the case that if I look at phonics, I'm going to have the same kind of tests and the same kind of samples and the same kind of control activity as when I look at setting and streaming. I'm George, the chemistry teacher. My question is, presumably these meta-analyses were used as, as you said, with honourable intentions as the best way to try and get all this evidence together. If they're not a good way, what do you suggest is the best alternative? <laughs> I love that question. I get that, I get that question a lot. There's, there's a piece of work by, by a statistician called David Freeman, and he lists a whole bunch of defences that people throw up when they're challenged about their statistical reasoning as being, having been exposed to being flawed or relying on assumptions that aren't, uh, that don't seem justified. And he's got about 20 of them. And I think I probably heard all, all 20 of them at, at various points. So, so one of them is, oh, the assumptions are, are correct. Well, in fact, they're not. Or, oh, but the assumptions are just assumptions. Or teachers are better off with us than without us. Or the, the classic one, which I do get a lot, which is what should we do instead? So my, I've, I've developed a kind of response to that now, which is imagine that you've got a pain in your foot and it's quite an annoying, nagging pain and you don't quite know what to do about it. So you ask, you ask somebody who's quite learned and that learned person says, deal with the pain in your foot, punch yourself in the face repeatedly, really hard, as hard as you possibly can. So you keep doing this, you keep punching yourself in the face, you keep punching yourself in the face and your doctor comes up to you and she says to you, Stop punching yourself in your face. It's not going to cure the problem with your foot. But you keep punching yourself in your face and you turn to her and you say, what should I do instead? Well, kind of the first thing is stop punching yourself in the face. <laughs> Only once you've stopped punching yourself in the face can we have a discussion about what to do with your foot. It may be that your foot is incurable, and I'm really sorry about that. But stop punching yourself in your face. That doesn't make sense. So, I mean, and it's a, it is meant as a joke, but there's, there's a kernel of, of truth in it. And there are some things that we could look at instead. But I almost want to finish by saying, to finish the argument by saying, just stop punching yourself in the face. But people do, you know, they are desperate for what are the alternatives? Well, there are, I mean, there are some alternatives. One is, let's not do meta-analysis completely. Quite often, a well-written meta-analysis will contain a narrative analysis as well. It will contain a discussion about not just averaging together a bunch of randomized control trials, but some kind of discussion that tries to explain why something might work, what the mechanism is by which something works. So there are these um, researchers called Porson and Tilly who talk about realistic evaluation. And realistic evaluation is, is not about simply saying, does something work or doesn't something work? It's about trying to understand the mechanism by which something works, and in particular, what the contexts are in which that mechanism works. If we can begin to understand that, it becomes a much more useful thing for, for a teacher to use. If we understand how is it that homework is sometimes better than no homework? What are the circumstances in which it's better than no homework? Why is it that it works? 
so that when you as a teacher look at your classroom and say, well, I've got this issue and I've got this context, will you know, do, does that mechanism work in my context? And does it address my issue? So a well-written narrative synthesis of the literature can often give us that, that mechanism that allows us to think about when something might work, in what circumstances. The realistic evaluation people often talk about the distinction between what works and what works for whom in what circumstances, to which I would probably add for what outcome and compared to what. And once you begin to understand that whole chain, then it becomes a much more useful thing anyway than just what works versus what doesn't work. But fundamentally, stop punching yourself in the face. That's a great analogy. And and in relation to that, how I mean, how hard do you think we've been punching ourselves in the face? What sort of level of damage do you think that this kind of, I'd go close to say obsession, here in Australia, I think we could fairly say it's an obsession with this kind of meta-analytical, meta-analytical approach. What sort of damage, if any, do you think it's 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 done? I mean, there's there's no way of knowing because we do, we don't know what the correct rank ordering is. We we know that what we've got is a is a rank ordering that's very very unlikely to be correct because it's a rank ordering for of areas where it's easier to conduct studies and harder to conduct studies, and that's unlikely to be the same as areas of educational effectiveness versus educational ineffectiveness. So, and kind of going back to that kind of Friedman's list of defences, I mean, one of the other things you see sometimes is people saying, but you haven't proved that the rank ordering is wrong. But that, that, that's a really specious argument. And so, so one of the key players in the sort of meta-meta-analysis published a paper, paper relatively recently where he, where he said, you know, I know about these, these criticisms. I, I even use them in my teaching. But nobody's proved my rank ordering wrong yet. You know, nobody's proved that feedback is a bad thing. Well, but that's not the point. It's it's a, it's a really bizarre response. You know, if, if I'd if someone had drawn up a rank ordering from reading goat entrails, and then when somebody ja- challenged the validity of their reasoning, they said, "But you haven't proved my conclusions wrong." Well, yeah, but what's the likelihood that reading goat entrails would be right? Pre- pretty slim, I suspect. But I can't, you're right, I can't prove that feedback is not a good thing. And personally, as a teacher, I kind of think feedback is probably a good thing in the right circumstances for the right people. I kind of also think that behavioural interventions for the right circumstances for the right people are a good thing too. I have personal views about school uniform, but at the moment, I don't have any way of knowing whether it does or doesn't. All I do know from the rank ordering is that existing studies in school uniform aren't very clear. Doesn't mean it's not important, just that it means those studies aren't very clear. If we do hone in on this rank ordering thing a little bit more, or or what should be up the top, something I've got increasingly interested in recently is kind of, I guess, what Bjork's desirable difficulties and, and things like spacing learning or and retrieval practice and interleaving concepts and things like that. I guess this is just a question to you. Have have you heard about these ideas? What what do you think in term? Do you think that they're valuable? Do you think the research supports them? And also relatedly, when you come to teaching and when you you come to teaching your teachers, what do you draw upon in order to inform your methods? So I I think I would go back to this whole notion of trying to look to the research for mechanisms. What is it about spaced learning that 
might make it work? And for whom would it work? In what circumstances would it work? And things like randomized control trials have, have some value there. So you know, a randomized control trial, you know, an, an individual study, will at least tell us something. It, tell, it might tell us that you know, we find an instance where something has worked for some people compared to something else on some outcome. Yeah, that, that's, that's quite useful. But if we can draw into that as well, well, why would it work? So um, I mentioned Nancy Cartwright early, earlier on, the person who kind of got me into thinking about this. She's got a really wonderful little notion that she talks about. So there's, there's a, a relatively well-conducted and well-known randomized control trial that showed that giving pupils deworming pills improved educational outcomes. That's great. So I have, uh, they, we, we take a, a sample, we split them in two randomly. We give one group deworming pills, the other group we don't give deworming pills. The group with the deworming pills outperform the group that weren't given the pills. A really naive interpretation of that would mean that I ought to start giving deworming pills in all the schools around Durham. That's probably a really poor thing to do. If we start to understand the mechanisms and the context, what is it about deworming pills that improves educational outcomes? Well, presumably there's some kind of mechanism around decreasing sickness and decreasing sickness might lead to increasing attendance and increasing attendance. Then there's a mechanism that leads from that to increase educational performance. Once I can begin to understand how these things work, I can begin to understand whether they'll work in my context. Well. I don't think the schools in Durham really suffer with with worming problem with worm problems, so deworming pills probably aren't going to work for me. But I might have a th thought that actually my attendance is poor, and maybe that's the reason for some of my poor educational outcomes. And focusing on attendance might then increase my educational performance. Deworming pills won't might, won't do that for me, but maybe something else will. So it's about it's about trying to diagnose, trying to get a sense of what's the nature of the problem I'm trying to solve, and then trying to dig down into the literature. An RCT, if there is one out there, that's, that's great, that's good, provided that it's showing that something works in something that's like your context on an outcome that's something like the outcome that you're interested in, that seems fine. But if I can back that up with some kind of notion of the mechanism, and mechanisms I think are probably more likely to come out from looking at things like in-depth case studies, qualitative comparative analysis, psychological studies, and drawing all of this literature together, rather than just saying, well, let's just take a whole bunch of RCTs, mash them together and, and average the effect size. This is Michaela. So what you're talking about basically indicates that teachers have to be really careful with whatever research they come across to not take it at face value, to think about the context in which it's done, when it might work and so forth. And so the question I have is around whether you have any advice for how to support teachers in being critical evaluators of the research that they come across. I mean, I don't know whether this is something that's, that's growing in Australia or not, but in the UK, it's a growing movement to schools having research leads. So having somebody whose who role it is to get, get some of their time given towards to, to looking at at research. And at the moment, I think a lot of that is around looking at precisely these meta-meta analyses and then using those to help support people. That's certainly what I've seen in a, a lot of schools around here. 
but if we can if we can use that resource and and move it towards something like a realistic evaluation approach starting to think about mechanisms and helping them understand how to interpret research in a in a much more sensible way i think that that's a really good way because we can't we cannot possibly imagine that an individual busy teacher should be able to dig down and dig down and dig down into the research to find just the kind of study that will suit them i think they need some support in that i think increasingly and we already have have this in this country where we're we're putting an emphasis on using research in teacher training but again what we mean by using research i mean we talk about this evidence based education what the evidence based education people normally talk about is precisely these meta meta analyses which are not providing us with evidence of effectiveness of interventions at all but if we can get a broader notion of what evidence is throw away the effect size stuff start looking at how we can combine rcts case studies different kinds of approaches to research to develop these what potentially called mid mid-range theories but i think of much more as kind of a, a link between mechanisms and context and outcomes i think it's likely to be much more useful but but that you know, inevitably relies on resource, and I think research leads are a really good resource if they can be nudged down that line. Great, that's a nice tie-in as well because we actually had Tom Bennett on, who's really pushing the research lead idea. We had him on yeah. episode three or four, so I'd encourage listeners yeah. to to jump back to that one. All right, maybe we'll jump into our few closing questions if that works for you, Adrian. Yeah, yeah, sure. All right, so first question: What advice? Well, I didn't actually realize you were a teacher. But so you can answer this question in, in two respects. What advice would you give to your first year teacher and or researcher self? My first year teacher self was don't be so afraid of the pupils. But my my first year researcher self is is this notion of, of being eternally curious. Just going where your thinking takes you. And, and it's unfortunate, I think, in universities at the, at the moment, Young researchers don't have that opportunity. They're they're very much pushed to to have a very clear plan of where they're going to go and develop develop their research and their their set targets for their research along that plan. And they have to plan years in advance about where they're going. And and I've I've certainly always enjoyed that ability to just go where my thinking takes me. And um, you know, working with fantastic colleagues, but just being able to jump jump in the direction where I want to go. And and that's the what I want to go back and say to my research self is don't be worried about doing that. Even even if people are trying to push you not to be that, to be much more directive, don't. Stay curious. Go go where your where your mind takes you. That's great advice. And in line with that, what where do you get your education research fix? Are there any blogs blogs you follow, particular people you follow on Twitter or, you know, in mm. the hallways having conversations with them or, or things things that you think our readers and listeners might like to hook into? I mean, I think I'm, I mean, in some sense, I'm a rather old fashioned researcher and I, I rely very much on research journals and try. I mean, again, I, I do a lot of kind of digging down and letting my curiosity take me where I want to. So I might start with a paper and that that flicks an interest in me. And I go off and read some of the references off that paper and I look at some of the people who cited that paper and, and that helps me get an, a, a handle on things. I mean, I, I guess. In terms of some of the statistical thinking that I, I, I do, there's a, there's a really nice blog by um, someone called Andrew Gelman who gives some really wise advice about statistical thinking and about trying to avoid 
some of these statistical errors and what kind of things we, we need to be doing to avoid some of these statistical errors and also owning up when we when we make them you know, when we realize we've made them having to try to suppress that ego that we all have and say actually yeah we made a mistake here and finally any last calls to action or things you would like listeners to go away today and do stop punching yourself in the face stop, stop using effect size to drive policy it's just it's it's there's there's very very little chance that that's doing anything other than harm Try and seek out direct research that's relevant to the problem that you've diagnosed. You know, look, look for that direct research and research synthesis that explains how interventions work. And, and stop, stop focusing too much on this binary does, doesn't work. But yeah, stop punching yourself in the face. Adrian Simpson, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I would have to say that of all the papers that I've, I've read in, in order to prepare for these episodes. I really feel that your paper has had one of the largest impacts on me than any of them. And I think that will potentially be the case for, for many listeners as well. Thanks for pointing out the importance of looking at mechanisms as a way to understand what is and what isn't helpful research to us. And thank you for your encouragement to stop punching ourselves in the face. So thanks again, and we'll definitely be looking forward to more research from you. This is the point in the ERRR where we usually cut to the outro, but this time you get a little behind-the-scenes action. We often have a conversation with our ERRR guests following the official interview, but in this case, it was sufficiently interesting that I asked Adrian if he'd be happy for us to share the post-interview discussion as part of this podcast. So it's not over yet. Here's the post-interview discussion with Adrian Simpson. Thanks so much. Your, your, your narratives really brought all, everything to life as well. Adrian, they were great. Good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Are you going to keep going down this rabbit hole? or? Well, I've got a paper out for, for review at the moment that's looking at the RCT issue because the, the, the whole kind of shtick behind what I'm, what I'm thinking about at the moment is this notion of the assumptions that we make when we do some of our, the statistical work. So you know, the assumptions that we were talking about earlier on, they're clearly absurd. You know, it's clearly absurd to believe that tests would be evenly distributed across different educational areas and that control activities would be evenly distributed across educational areas. Individual randomized control trials, they're, they're often very good, but there are assumptions behind those as well. And lots of people who do them think that they're assumption free. So I, I've written a paper there to talk a little bit about the assumptions that are involved, particularly in field RCTs when we do them in actual schools, because there's, there's particular assumptions that, that don't quite work. But I've also been, you, you said at the beginning of the discussion that you, you, know, you thought I'd been quite, I made some sort of quite pointed remarks and, and some quite strong remarks about meta-analyses. I, I think looking back at that paper, I really pulled my punches. And so I'm, I'm kind of writing a variant of, of almost not, it's not the same paper. It's trying to particularly pull out this notion of, of the effect size being a category error. Cause I think that wasn't in, in the paper as I originally wrote it and trying to get this notion of that in order for this to, to not be a category, you need to make these huge assumptions that aren't warranted. So I'm, I'm kind of towards the end. I've got kind of first draft of that paper. So I, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay curious. I'm going to continue down that rabbit hole until I get interested in something else. You know, so, and then I'll pop off probably back to mass education again. Got it. Got it. I, I'm just wondering though, do you, do you feel some kind of moral imperative to kind of rid the world of this, this, you know, false kind of idea of, of, of how meta-analyses can play can help education or? I think to some extent that that's probably a fair, a fair comment because 
a, a lot of a lot of research in education is, isn't very good. And I, I probably include some, you know, I probably include some of my own research there. I've I've published papers that I think you're looking back on them now aren't aren't very good. In fact, I might even publish some that at the time I thought eh, it's not a great paper. But this has become such a big thing, and it's driving policy and it's changing people's lives. And that that does worry me that it's changing people's lives. So I, I do think that that we really do need to to stop doing this. We really stop need to stop doing something that's very very obviously wrong. But research should be self-correcting. This is this is the way research should happen. That you know somebody publishes a paper and somebody else comes along and says, well, this doesn't quite work. That you know this bit needs to be corrected. And if you correct it, then this bit's right and that bit's wrong. In in this particular case, it's I hope that research begins to self-correct and people do come back and say, well, actually, no, this doesn't work. The the problem that concerns me is that I think you know, I say I'm not the only person who who's said some of these things. People have been complaining about meta-analyses in for, for various reasons since they were invented, and pe- people still aren't really listening. Yeah, I just had a point to make on that. I think. This whole time, you know, we've been talking, I've just been, yeah, wondering why why it is that these sorts of critiques, you know, haven't been made already or how, I guess, yeah, how these ideas have been able to take such a huge role in driving policy. And, you know, there is that kind of optimistic notion of, oh, well, the research will self-correct. But, you know, it kind of that factors out all the political side of this that we haven't really touched on at all. And, that's something that I was talking about earlier before we started this discussion about how alluring it is or how, you know, much politicians and bureaucrats love this idea because it enables them to regulate what teachers do and have a way of, yeah, controlling the education process. And the alternative that you've advocated is much more difficult for them to to manage in that way. And there's also that growing marketization of our school system and, you know, there's companies that can, you know, develop these standardized educational materials and professional development for teachers and packages for schools and all of those things are very profitable and this these sorts of meta-analyses or, you know, judging teacher or practice effectiveness based on effect sizes, it's just so profitable i guess and and so good for bureaucrats and politicians yeah so i don't know it makes me feel really pessimistic if you think about it in those terms like there's such a strong there's a whole like machinery behind this now and it feels like it's got such momentum and so many people really invested in in keeping us duped i I think i think dupes is a strong word i i go back to you know i've 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 never met John Hattie, but bizarrely he's a he's a visiting professor at my university. But I've never actually met him. He doesn't visit very often. But some some of the people in my department are some of the you know leading players in the the toolkit material, and they're honourable people. They're not trying to dupe anyone. They're really not. They're they they are decent people who are trying nothing other than to to do good. And you know, what one of my colleagues talks very passionately about the reason he does this is because he's a a strong believer in social justice and that particularly a lot of what the Education Endowment Foundation focuses on is educational disadvantage. And and you, you can't fault the, the morality behind that. That's just, that's really, really good. So what I'd like to think is I'd like to think that they've, they've made a mistake. 
It's not so much about pointing the finger at researchers as saying, you know, which are the ideas that are funded that, you know, who's given a greater voice, who's given. Yeah. 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 By, I guess, by the politicians, by the businesses. Yeah are investing in these ideas or that are promoting these ideas rather than because yeah just it really doesn't make sense how something which is so easy easily yeah disputed has gained such prominence and it's yeah it seems bizarre to me I mean you've really demystified a lot of this for me today because I'm an English humanities teacher and I don't have you know a strong grasp of this statistical analysis I haven't done that before or really looked into it before, but yeah, you know, from the way you've explained it, it does seem quite clear that it's you know effect sizes are not a good judge of the effectiveness of the actual intervention. It seems quite clear. I'm sure I don't under I don't really understand. I guess I still don't understand how someone who's been trained in statistical analysis could have made that error, or how so many people have made that error. Yeah, is there anything you could say about why that might have happened? Why there are good academics? making that mistake i mean effect size does have a use i mean it was it was developed for a use and it still has that use which is in in designing studies so in designing a study you do want to have a sense of power this this notion of your chance of detecting a difference were the one to be there and so for example if, if i knew that i was searching for something that i would expect to be quite a small effect size i probably want a large sample size and I need to not waste resource by having to have a large sample when actually I don't need one because I've got quite a large effect size. And and actually in, in other circumstances, standardised effect size can have a role for... So if, if I had the same intervention, the same control group and the same control group treatment and the same sample, but I had two different tests, then comparing the... you know My, my tests were on two different scales. So, so one was marked out of 100 and one was marked out of 50. You know, I could just I just could compare those just by multiplying by two, but with different kinds of tests, I, I'm using a effect size by standardizing across those does make a lot of sense. So, so there's some value to it. It's like all of these these issues that the statistics behind them, when the assumptions hold, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. When the assumptions hold, they're fine. So if you, if you look at meta-analyses in medicine, for example. So if you look at something, you know, somebody might do a meta-analysis about aspirin, but they won't compare, they won't pull together studies which are aspirin against ibuprofen and aspirin against a placebo and aspirin against an antacid and aspirin against cancer chemotherapy. They'll pull together papers which are always a particular dose of aspirin against a particular dose of ibuprofen on a particular sample, let's say you know, young, adult, young adults between 16 and 25, and always on the same measure, always on effective headache pain. And when you do that, that makes sense because you have always got the same control, the same test, the same sample. And we, we make real progress that way. So, so you know, statins for heart conditions, were the, the, the power of those was demonstrated by taking lots of studies about statins and putting them together through a meta-analysis, where we're, where we're being very, very careful about what we're comparing to, what our outcome measure is, and what our sample is, and it's always the same. So, so when the assumptions hold, this is a this is a powerful way of doing research. 
but you step away from those assumptions just a tiny, tiny little bit, and and you get what the the, the wonderful Richard Burke, who's a, another statistician who writes so beautifully. He talks about statistical malpractice disguised as statistical razzle dazzle, and it, it's you don't need to let those assumptions go very far before it all falls apart. But when the assumptions hold, it's fine. And I think so. That's what happens is that people who aren't focused on the assumptions take something that looks like it's powerful and just continue to use it and in terms of you know, going back to your point about policymakers policymakers love a love a simple answer you know it's it, it's really nice to to be able to just have a really straightforward answer to to a question you know a, a number to be able to put a number on a question as an answer to a question it just feels like a simple thing to do. We all love simple answers. I'm, I'm just sitting here trying to trying to find the, the famous quote from H.L. Mencken. Oh, there it is. There's always an easy solution to every human problem. Neat, plausible and wrong. <laughs> and, and, and that's, you know, that's what we are as, as human beings. We, we search for simple answers. And these meta-meta-analyses, they feel like they're simple answers. Well, that, that clarified things for me a little bit. I didn't quite realise. So, just to clarify, you're suggesting that in the field of medical research, effect size, because of all these tightly controlled variables, effect size is a good measure of effectiveness of an intervention, but that's been misapplied to the field of education research. I mean, I'm, I'm not for a moment suggesting that, that, that medicine is perfect. Pe people, again, they, they let their assumptions slip in medicine as well. Yeah. And that, that whole notion of what works, what doesn't work, is, is, is very neatly critiqued. There's some beautiful work by somebody called Trisha Greenhall, who again, just you know, write, writes in a way I just wish I could write, when she talks about, again, taking this notion of realistic evaluation in, into medicine, and particularly taking the social aspect of medicine, that you know, a doctor doesn't just give you a pill, that the whole notion of pill taking, and whether you take the pill, whether you don't take the pill, all of these are, are influenced by all kinds of social decisions. We live in a social world. But, but yes, Certainly, medical researchers seem to be much more attuned to the kind of the kind of assumptions that we that we need to make hold. I mean, I I play around sometimes with what medical research would look like if they did what educational researchers do. So we'd have this kind of league table of effects on health, and it would be measured in sort of years survival, and it would have antacids at the top, <laughs> followed by painkillers, followed by chemotherapy, followed by blood thinners all the way down to you know public health education at the bottom you know, you'd have the effect of aspirin which would be comparing aspirin against chemotherapy on wound healing alongside comparing aspirin with a placebo on headaches you know it, when you put it in that kind of context it's it's clearly not a sensible thing to do why do we think it's a sensible thing to do in education yeah that's a very funny comparison so it kind of goes both ways so one last thing I'd like to mention, though, is I was trained at a university that uses, you know, what's been criticized as like a medical model of teaching, and mm. they call teachers clinical interventionist practitioners. Mm. And so they are, you know, advocating a clinical model of teaching. I mean, even if they don't call it a medical model, is that something that you've seen in universities in England? Is that taking hold there as well? Because here it's, you know, they present themselves as, you know, the one of the top universities for education. And and we've seen, you know, by talking to people from other universities and, you know, what we read, this is having quite a big influence on other 
on other institutions? It's not something I've heard of, to be honest. And te- teacher training in, in the UK is... That's a relief. <laughs> well, it is and it isn't, and partly because teacher training in the UK is, is in a pretty parlous state where I mean, increasingly people are going through routes where they get virtually no virtually no preparation for going into school. So you know, one of the most popular routes into teaching involves uh, an intensive six-week course and then you're into school and, and you get pulled out again for a few more sessions out, out of that. But you know, the, the idea that you can come out of your degree, have a six-week course and be in as a, as a teacher in a, in a school doesn't, doesn't feel right for me. Good day, Adrian. George here again. Oh, yeah. I just want, not so much a question, I just wanted to thank you. It was your 2011 paper that actually motivated me to start the blog and to try and right. put together all the all, all the so thanks for all that hard work i've stopped watching neighbors and home and away <laughs> so i can read all those meta-analysis but the thing i realized and i really i really enjoyed your analogies i've tried to show my blog to to teachers and by and large their eyes roll they sort of get a bit sick of all the the data and trying to think of really good ways in which to communicate to them and i think your analogies are really good and the last one about having a hierarchy of medical interventions, I think it'd be fantastic. That'd really hammer the, mm. the nail home, I think. But anyway, I just wanted to thank you for your paper, yeah. that 2011 paper, because that really started the ball rolling for me. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm going to keep you for another second. I just had, I've had a message from John Bush, who works for the Australian equivalent of the Education Endowment Foundation, because mm. he knew that we were going to be speaking to you tonight. And he had a few questions. I think we've broadly covered them, yeah. but maybe you have a thing or two to say to them. Yeah. The first question was, in terms of guidance for teachers or school leaders, what are meta-analyses good for? The second question was, what are they not good for? And finally, how do you tell a strong one from a weak one? Did you want to briefly touch upon any of them? Mm. So what, what are they good for? Really good ones that have the narrative synthesis and that draw out the, the mechanisms. And, and there are good ones in there. I think that part, I mean, almost throw away the, the bit with all the numbers in and read the, the narrative synthesis and try to draw out that, that notion of the, of the mechanism. What, what are they not good for? They're, in terms of comparing them, they're, they're not good for telling us what's more or less effective or more or less important or more or less relevant as an intervention, because that's just, you know, as I say, repeatedly, it's, it, it's just a category error that's not obviated by by this averaging process very very clearly what was the last question how do you tell a good one from a weak one it is whether they do try to go beyond the numbers it's whether they do i mean that the, there are some astonishingly weak ones included in in the meta meta analyses so you know the, the the absolute worst of them tend to not even tell you what papers they're based there their meta-analysis on. So, uh, I mean, sometimes it's just a conference paper that just says, we collected together these studies according to these criteria, and we found an effect size of 0.7. That, that's of absolutely no value to me at all, other than potentially as a research, that might tell me that that's an area of research where studies tend to be quite powerful, they tend to be quite clear, but it's of a, it's a, it's a no value to a, to a practitioner. But yeah, the, the good ones from the bad ones is... is it's the ones that have the narrative synthesis. Cool. Well, you've been very, very generous with your time this morning. Well, or very this I've enjoyed it very much.
That's good. Keep us up to date with when your new stuff comes out yeah. because I think this is a really important issue. As I've, as I've said, it's been a paradigm shift for me yeah. and I'll be looking at research in very different ways in future. And, and that will be reflected in this podcast as well, which will ho- hopefully have broader effects more widely. So, Okay. Jeez. Thanks very much. Okay. All right. Right. Nice to see you see all. mate. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Adrian Simpson. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com forward slash podcasts. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've really been enjoying the ERRR, I'd love for you to consider supporting the production of the show through making a donation on Patreon. Making a donation, however large or small, will help me to cover the costs of room hire and sound engineering and help to make the podcast more sustainable in the long run. Check out patreon.com forward slash ERRR to explore the possibility of supporting the show. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week and until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.